Well, good morning again. So my name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and it's good to be back with you again. I have been uh, out of the uh, pulpit for four weeks now due to our missions uh, committee, our missions conference. We got to hear from several of our missionaries over the last month, and it was a good time for us to see what the Lord is doing th- from our church and other parts of the world. But the, the problem with that is, you know, like most New Testament books, we're going to be in the book of James. These books were letters written by actual people to other actual people. And so how do you read a letter? Do you, do, when you get a letter or an email from somebody, do you read a paragraph, wait a week, read another paragraph, <laughs> wait a week? No, right? You read it all at once. And that's how this letter was meant to be read. And so we started James back in June, with, made it through the first two chapters, and then we took a month off. And now we're in James chapter three, and it can be kind of hard to pick up on this and kind of remember what James is talking about. So just really, very briefly, James has been a very wonderful and yet tough book. James is very pragmatic. He's very practical. And James um, says it like it is. And, and if James were here today, he would basically say, you know, your words are very easy. It's very easy to say Jesus Christ is Lord. It's very easy to say I am a Christian. And James would kind of go, I really don't listen to your words. I look at your life. How you live proves what you really believe. And so James is all about looking for that proof. He wants to see a demonstration of righteousness. And so he, he wants them to be these authentic people that he's writing to. It's a classical Greek concept called a poet. Now, in the classical world, a poet is not someone with a goatee sitting around with a tiny little, tiny little cup of coffee trying to figure out how to make things rhyme, okay? That's not, that's not what a poet is to them. A poet is this someone who has this integrity where they're a connection to the supernatural world. In the Christian parlance, we would say a poet is someone who is a foretaste of heaven in the world as it is. We could say they are a connection between the world that will be and the world that is. Now, in the classical world, they had this great respect for poets. They loved to to listen to texts. There was a great tradition of standing around and listening to poets talk. And even though they loved drama, they really appreciated poets. The, The Greek word for poet is poetes, poet. But what they did not like was they didn't like actors, which is interesting. Anybody know what the ancient Greek word, you probably don't, but it's okay, you, you will, what the ancient Greek word for an actor is? They loved poets, they didn't like actors. Anybody, anybody know this? It's hypocrite. That's the word. For, they, they did not like or trust because, because they're like, we don't know who you really are. You keep playing this role, but a poet is true through and through. And so James, why am I telling you about poets? Because James has this famous phrase commonly translated, be a doer of the word. And that word doer is actually that Greek word poet. James is calling people to this integrity of life where you are who you are. So he goes on in chapter two to then kind of make that even more explicit where he says, look, Look, you are not justified by faith alone, but you are also justified by works and not faith alone, which makes our good Presbyterian eyes twitch a little bit, right? We're all about justification by faith alone. But what James is saying there is this, when God declares you righteous, when he pours righteousness into you and then life squeezes you, if that really happened, righteousness should come out. You should demonstrate righteousness. So when trials come and life squeezes, what oozes out of you is works. If you have faith, good works come out. And so James is like, I don't care about your words. I'm going to watch how you live and see if you are actually demonstrating that righteousness. 
And now he's done these big principles. Now in chapter 3, he's going to get to specific application, what he's actually talking about. And that can be difficult. This can be a kind of passage that you could very easily read as do better. This could be very easy, a passage. I could get up here and make it seem like I'm shaking my finger at you. You you better straighten up, you bad Christians. And so I want to remind you that one of the things the New Testament letters like to do is they like to give you a theological principle and then they give you a behavioral um, implication of that. In other words, they give you the grace that empowers obedience and then they give you the, the thing you should obey. So we've done the grace part in June, and now we're at the things you should obey. But remember, they're all together in one letter read at one time. So this, the commands, the action, the, the, the do better you may hear today is based on the grace of chapters 1 and 2. So today what we're going to see is chapter 2 was show me your faith by your works. And today we're going to see that specifically what he's talking about is your words, how you talk to and about other people, especially in the church, shows what you really believe. They will prove if you know Jesus or not. So with that in mind, as is our tradition, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? James chapter 3, it's found for you in your bulletin on page 9. It'll also be on the slides here. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of our life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly fathers, we come before your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see grace and then be empowered by that grace. Even now, Lord, would you prevent us from do better, try harder, dig deeper, exert, work, toil, perform, and instead would we hear grace and then be empowered by that grace to be who you would have us to be and who we really want to be. I pray that you would do that, Lord, by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. <clears throat> so James wants to talk about our words because our words are what show our heart. And that gets us our theme for today, which is this. Since our hearts leak through our mouth, our words show what we really worship. 
Our hearts leak out through our mouths, and so our words show what we really worship. The show me your faith by your works, he says in, in chapter 2, becomes our words show what we really believe. Our speech, how we talk to and about each other, shows what we really believe. You know, boys and girls, you know this sometimes better than mom and dad do, don't you? Let's say you have this neighborhood kid who, when they don't have any other friends around, they always want to play with you, and they're really nice and when, you're, when you're around and no one else is, and, and they, want to, they want to be with you because they're bored. But then their other friends show up, and all of a sudden they're mean. They say bad things to you. They say bad things about you. They're not kind. You kind of recognize, oh, that person is not my friend. Their, their words have shown me who they really are. And that's what James is saying here. That's what he's talking about today is we show what we really believe by our words. So let me give you the this, this setup here in this, in this passage because it's a little different. So James has already established that he likes to use classical world ideas. He, he grabs stuff from their everyday life in ancient Rome to teach them. And we have to keep that in mind or when we read this, verses one and two kind of seem like an editing error. Like in his final draft here, James hit control C, control V in the wrong place and these two sentences popped up because it does the, the show me your faith by your works from chapter two and we get to guard your words in chapter three and these two verses about teachers seem out of the blue, out of context. But what we have to remember and what a, a, a pastor from 500 years ago named John Calvin helps us point out if you look at the Greek and, and Roman background of what he's saying, he is mocking right now. He's not commending. He's not saying, man, being a teacher is a good thing, and y'all should try to be teachers, but be careful because God judges teachers harshly. It's not what he's saying. Most English translations in verse 1 use the word teachers. It's actually the word for master, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek word for master. And so what he's really saying is, look, not many of y'all should assume your master's. This particular word was used mockingly for people who were self-appointed masters. Kind of how we sometimes use the word expert pejoratively. That's what he's doing. Let me give you an example of this. Other people have done this. Not y'all, I know, I know. But other people, you know how like in the last 18 months without any additional training or certification, so many people all of a sudden have become experts on immunology, virology, the effectiveness of masks and social distancing. <laughs> That's kind of what he's talking about. Like, oh, you're an expert, are you? See, he's talking to a church full of people who are self-confessed masters of Christianity. And they judge those in the church who aren't quite as masterful as they are. So, so James comes in in verse 2 with, uh, oh, oh, you think you're an expert fit to judge others, do you? Okay. Let's look together at the kids' version of verse 2. Here's how he put it for the kids. Here's what he's saying. He says, look, we all mess up. And if you think you've never said a mean thing, well, then you must be perfect in every way. I mean, it's dripping with sarcasm in the original that we often miss in our English translations. What's going on is there are these people who thought they were experts. They were masters and they were judging those who weren't. I know for some of you that's shocking that there are people in the church who were judgmental towards other people, but it happens occasionally. <laughs> and this is the trial. This is the difficulty the book is written about when it comes at the very beginning. Count it all joy when you go through trials. This is the biggie. The churches he's writing to have these factions of people who are like, we got it all together and you don't, and so we get to judge you. In other words, there's monsters in the church. Really, there's monsters. At the end of last chapter, James said that separating faith and works is like separating the body and the spirit. 
And what do you get when you get that? You get monsters, right? I, I used the metaphor a month ago, if you remember that. What it means is it makes us zombies or it makes us ghosts. Zombies are what? That's a body without a spirit. All works, no faith. Or you're a ghost, which is what? A spirit without a body. All faith, no works. And James says, no, be a poet uniting faith and works. So today he's addressing those monsters in the church. Today he expands on those monsters. So to get, to get, to get us this set up, I want to look at verse 2 in the ESV translation. Let's look at verse 2 together. Here's how he starts out. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. See, monsters read that as a challenge. Lays out two paths before them. They think, if I try hard enough, I can be that perfect person. I can do this. This is the legalistic impulse inside of all of us. And it results in judging others who we don't deem are doing as well as we are. That's that expert thing from verse 1. So our first group of monsters, these are people who are all about works, not really about faith. These are zombies. These people have lots of religious practices and behaviors without actually believing the gospel. They read verse 2 and they think, with discipline and effort, I can control my life. I can bridle myself. God will love me. And if I can suck it up and do that, you can too. And if you don't, I get to judge you. True confession time. I, I was this person. I placed my trust in Jesus in high school, but I had a very superficial understanding of the gospel itself. It was all about my choice to believe Jesus, my further choice to be more religious, and your choice not to do those things, which led me into an us versus them mentality. You ever, you ever tasted an us versus them mentality in church world? Yeah, sorry about that. I, I, that's me. My bad. You see, I wasn't into Jesus. I was into what I call now churchianity, not Christianity. What, what people smarter than me call moralism were certain supposedly Christian behaviors, Christian cultural practice, Christian political stances are what truly important. And Jesus is just kind of an afterthought. See, you know this is happening whenever the community knows us more for what we're opposed to rather than for our demonstration of Jesus. If you had asked my friends in high school, oh, they definitely knew what political party I affiliated with and why. They definitely knew what I was opposed. They definitely knew where I thought their life was insufficient. But if you asked them if I ever talked to them about Jesus, I didn't. That was me. And it seemed so godly on the outside. I was like super captain youth group guy. Parents are very impressed, especially parents of daughters are always like, hey, have you ever thought about dating Sean? They're like, Sean's a jerk. No, I'm not going to date Sean. So... I didn't know that then, so anyway. <laughs> See, on the inside, there was no life for me. I did not have the joy of a relationship with the Creator. Why? Because being a godly person is so hard. I was actually a monster. And so what I did to make myself feel better is, you know, I, I, was, I, was, I would make myself look better than you did. Well, at least I'm more godly than she is. At least I work harder than he does. Especially if I could make you feel guilty for not being as godly as me. Oh man, that was awesome. Because that's what zombies do, right? They sustain themselves by eating other people. James says to the very religious people, the self-appointed masters of verse 1 and 2, he says they are actually the walking dead. They're all about works. They're all about performance, but they don't actually believe the gospel. 
and they destroy the church. But there's the other kind of monster as well. We saw these people last chapter as well, very quickly. They see verse 2 as a challenge also. Don't stumble, be perfect, control your life, have peace. And they think, I can do that. But instead of being zombies, they're ghosts. They're all about faith and belief, and they care very little for religious behaviors and practices. Ghosts offer to God their earnest beliefs. Zombies offer to God their earnest lives. For ghosts, it's all about having faith. Just deny difficulties. Your problems will go away. Just believe harder. Again, self-confession time. I've been here too. Uh, anybody ever heard that? Yeah, I got to go back, way on back to the 1990s in American Christian culture. Anybody ever heard of the victorious Christian life? Remember that one? Man, this was like the apex of evangelical Christianity in America, right? It took this heresy from the first century called Gnosticism, repackaged it, and sold it on this idea that real Christianity is found by walking in victory. All these regular Christians walking around praying for help with temptation, praying for their struggles with depression, praying for their financial struggles, their health struggles. Man, those people don't get it. They just need to claim their victory. And those assumptions are still around. Not quite that blatant. But think of this. Have you ever been in church world and someone has walked up to you and said, man, how's, how you doing? How's, how's life treating you? And you feel this pressure to make everything good, to polish it up. Everything's great to not really share any problems because somehow something in you says, I don't know if I'm supposed to share problems because shouldn't Christians be happy and have everything together? If you feel that pressure, that's because you're somewhere that's haunted, surrounded by ghosts who say Christians should be happy, happy, happy with the time, time, time. And if you have problems, well, you're not living in victory. You don't believe the gospel. You just need to believe harder. See, ghosts think you just have to have more faith. Just believe more earnestly. No counseling. You don't need medication. Just have more faith. Ghosts see people struggling with depression, with relationships, with temptation, and they judge them. They don't believe the gospel. It's a very passive view of Christianity, removed from reality. Let go and let God. Not in Scripture, but ghosts love that one. And earnest, struggling people see these monsters. They interact with these monsters, and they think, well, if they really believe the gospel, I, just, I don't think I could ever believe the gospel. I, I just don't have that. I guess Christianity isn't for me. And they walk away. But ghosts don't care because that's what they do. That's their job. Their job is to scare people away. Why all this monster talk? What am I, what am I doing? Because zombies eat others. Ghosts scare others. And James is trying to show us this is a big trial in church world. Remember what he's trying to show us. Our hearts leak out through our mouths. Our words show what we really worship. James is talking to church attenders about how we speak to and about each other. Our words reveal what we really hope in. Are we zombies who hope in earnestly doing the right religious things? Or are we ghosts who hope in earnestly believing the right religious things. See, neither of those monsters place their hope in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Their hope is in themselves, in their actions, in their earnestness. And what happens is they crash against the reality of verse 8. Let's look at verse 8 together. What's it say? No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
See, monsters cannot produce from within themselves enough to please God. They can't control this tongue. They eventually fail, and what happens is they fall into a complaining bitterness or a withdrawn apathy. You ever seen that in church? Maybe you know someone like this. You know, those who've been run off by monsters or those who, were, who left because they were monsters, we actually have an official name for these people. They're called de-churched. They've been here, they've done that, and they've rejected it. But here's the rub. They aren't actually rejecting Christianity. They've never actually tasted Christianity in the gospel. Instead, they've experienced this monstrosity of trying to perform for God. And when life doesn't work out, the evil in their heart leaks out and they leave. See, but there's another way. James tells us faith without works is dead. It produces monsters, but faith united to works equal life. So instead of monsters in the church, we see life in the church of Jesus Christ. Instead of being monsters of death, the church of Jesus Christ is actually a family of life. People who are alive in Jesus, we read verse 2 as a promise instead of a challenge. Let's look at verse 2 again. Let's go back to verse 2 and look at this. Instead of a challenge, look at it as a promise. What does verse 2 say? Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. See, those of us who God has actually put righteousness into, we read that and we go, oh yeah, there was one who did not stumble in what he said and was a perfect person. Jesus Christ was perfect and complete for us. See, whereas monsters judge others thinking they should be able to do this, those alive in Jesus judge ourselves because we realize we'll never be able to do that. We admit that we do stumble. We admit that we're not perfect. We hear our own words, the words we say and the words we think about others. And it drives us to repent of our evil hearts because we see it ourselves. Man, our evil hearts leak out through our words. And instead of trying harder, because that's what monsters do, poets, those in Christ, confess our hopelessness before our wicked hearts. See, if we read this passage and we really understand what James is saying here, we, he wants us to be hopeless to overcome the evil inside of us. I mean, look with me at verse 6, how much he wants us to see. You can't do this. What does he say? He says, our words, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. And you can't really tell it in English here, but James is really worked up at this point. He is really getting angry and worked up. Let me, let me help you feel this. So about 10, 15 years ago, part of my pastoral ministry when I was in, uh, outside St. Louis was I was a fire department chaplain. And my very first day on, on the job, I sat down and met with the chief, and we were a half suburban, half rural department. So we had one big fire station in the, in the suburbs. We had two smaller ones out in the rural areas. And so he drove me around all the different houses, was introducing me, and we got to one of the rural houses. We pull in the parking lot, and I hear the chief mutter under his breath, oh, Lord, what's this? And he look up, and one of their big old honking, awesome four-wheel drives that they use to go fight fires off in the woods is like, has a door on the ground. And there's a red-faced officer, captain, wearing a white shirt, just screaming at a guy wearing a blue shirt, which is a regular grunt firefighter. He looks up and sees the chief car and sends the guy off real quick. And chief walks out, and chief kind of knows what's going on, so he has some fun. He immediately introduces the new chaplain. And here's the problem, exactly. 
See, maybe you don't know this, but Marty will know this, and I can tell you this. You know, when you meet a pastor and you're not really a church person, you assume we're your mom. And so you get real polite and you stop cussing. I don't care. I'm not your mom, just so you know. Anyway, so this guy had just completely exhausted his vocabulary of cuss words on this person, was still quite worked up, and had all that vocabulary stored in his RAM, and he was afraid if he opened up his mouth, that was, was going to come out, so he couldn't complete a sentence. He just looked at me, he was like, nice, meet, hi, you, hey, door. Because see, what happened is his guy had backed the truck out of the building with the door open looking this way, because he wasn't too bright, and ripped the door off the truck. Captain was mad. And he couldn't complete his sentence because he didn't want to cuss in front of the chaplain. And that's really, if you read the original, what James is doing here in verse 6. He doesn't use as many words as he's supposed to. He's missing a lot of words. And so it can almost read ultra-literally as James goes, tongue, fire, universe, evil. He's just so upset. And we Christians should get why James is so upset. Because we've seen it in ourselves, haven't we? We have been tools of Satan with our words. Yes, Christians can absolutely be tools of Satan to disrupt the church. Any one of us in the room can and maybe has been. Anytime someone's words disrupt relationships, that's a tool of Satan. Hinder worship, it's a tool of Satan. Stifle evangelism, it's a tool of Satan. See, we all have this propensity to judge others, don't we? I mean, I do. I struggle with this. Now, for those of you who aren't really familiar with church world or might surprise you to hear a pastor say that. It's not my job to judge people. A lot of times when I meet people who aren't part of church at all, they think, oh, that's, that's the pastor's job. And you're like the professional judger. It's like, no, that's called the judge. He is, he's in a court. I'm in a church. Okay, it's not my job to judge people. So I don't want to judge people, but I have that in me. And so here's what I've started to do. Maybe this will help you. Whenever that impulse to judge somebody comes in and the Holy Spirit is gracious enough to remind me that I don't want to be that person, I ask myself one simple question, just one, maybe this will help you. It's this, am I the Holy Spirit? And then I go and I find a mirror. Nope, I'm not. Because Jesus himself, the incarnate son of God, John chapter 16, verse eight says, I will send the Holy Spirit and quote, he will judge the world concerning sin, close quote. Aren't you so happy to hear that dear Christians? Jesus Christ himself says, that propensity you have to judge the world concerning sin, let me just take that and give it to the Holy Spirit so you don't have to judge the world concerning sin anymore. Isn't that great? But we like to judge the world concerning sin. <laughs> I know. You need to talk to Jesus because he said it, not me. I'm just a messenger. See, those made alive in Jesus, we recognize that our selfishness leaks out through our speech. And instead of being empowered and like, yeah, we're experts, man. We get righteousness and you don't. We get to judge you. No, we're broken because we're so judgmental. And we grieve when we see judgmentalism around us in the church. And that drives us to verse 8. See, we're for monsters, verse 8 is a brick wall. For those in Christ, verse 8 is a defiant hope. Let's look at verse 8 again. What does he say? He says, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. He uses a really weird construction there, and if we translate it literally, he actually says, no one from humanity is able to tame the tongue. See, James tells us what? You have to seek resources from outside humanity. 
And that's why there's hope. Because instead of being an expert and judging us, James instead points us to Jesus, who did have resources from outside humanity, didn't he? Being fully God and fully man. Jesus came and he had resources we don't have. And this tells us a couple things really important. First of all, this is probably most scholars, you know, there are, there are biblical scholars who don't believe any of it at all, but they're excellent biblical scholars, and there are biblical scholars who do. And pretty much the majority opinion is James is probably the earliest New Testament book. So here we have something very early where very quickly James is articulating right here that this person of Jesus is very unique and somehow he has like a human nature, but also access to a non-human nature. Later theologians would call this two natures in one person. But here's why that's important. Don't let the Dan Browns, you know, the Da Vinci Code, and other pop historians tell you, oh, the church didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus for like 400, 500 years. It's not true. Lies. Right here, we have evidence. Jesus' little brother Jimbo here is writing probably 20 to 25 years after the resurrection. A mere decade, two decades and he's saying Jesus is divine. The church from the very beginning has seen Jesus as divine. Second for us today, James tells us Jesus is able to tame the tongue. Jesus did have complete mastery of himself. And, and so, as verse 2 promises, he was that perfect human being. And so what we do is we take our need and our helplessness against our tongue to him. We rest in Him instead of ourselves, and He turns us from zombies and ghosts to poets. We rest our hope in Jesus' earnestness, not our own. He did fulfill everything God commanded. He was perfect. He fully trusted, fully believed with His heart, and He never said an ill word. And united to Him by faith, the New Testament says this crazy thing that what's true of him is true of you. So that you can be that perfect person able to bridle their tongue in Jesus. See, this is not try harder. This is not believe harder. This is James saying, be who you are. If God has poured it in you, when life comes and squeezes you, it should come out of you. So in that moment, when you really want to judge somebody, and there's so many people in our life who have earned that, right? We can stop, like, am I the Holy Spirit? No, it's not my job to judge them. Instead, my job is what? To demonstrate Jesus to them. And instead of being monsters who've had the life ripped out of us, we are actually a renewed people who have had life poured into us by Jesus Christ. See, and living in that reality then puts us on the positive side of the metaphor he ends with in verse 11 and 12. Let's look at that together. What, what are these metaphors he ends with? Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. See, what James says is when you're on this side of it, what's really true comes out of you and it's good. He ends positively on fresh and clean water because that's what Jesus makes us, fresh and clean in the gospel. Not because we tried harder, not from letting go and letting God, but by being completely transformed into a different person by grace. You see, Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. 
And he died the death that we should have died before this holy God. And even for people like us who were zombies and ghosts, he died to make us poets. The death that we deserve, he took. And when we place our faith and trust in him, his perfection is actually given to us. We're adopted as God's daughters and sons. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is the proof that all that is true. See, James is trying to get us to see that Jesus can tame our tongues because he broke our stone-cold hearts. And he replaced it with a new heart full of life. And so for those of us who place our faith and trust in Jesus, what beats in our chest is a heart of life. And the overflow of that heart through our mouth means we can speak truth and love to each other, not judgment and selfishness. And don't you want to be that kind of person in that kind of community? Man, I do. That's what James promises here through the gospel. So, so quit trying so hard. Quit judging others who aren't trying as hard. And instead, rest in Jesus Christ alone. For some of you, what that means, it means you, you need to cast off everything you think you know about Christianity. Everything you've thought religion is, just cast it aside and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus. And he will change you. And your words will reflect that change. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, passages like this are tough. So again, Lord, I pray even now that you would protect us from that voice inside of us of do harder, try harder, be better, be more earnest, perform, come on. And instead, it would be replaced with a voice of failure that we would recognize we can't control our tongue because we're from humanity. Would you help us to believe, Lord, that no one from humanity can, so you sent your son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from this curse of your law. Would you help us, Lord, to believe the gospel and rest in your promises? Uh, Lord, we ask that for those who are here today who may have been hurt by people judging them, we pray, Lord, that you would give them the ability to forgive and they would see the beauty of Jesus and that they would place their faith and trust in him even now. Lord, we pray that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>